Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit market that we think you should know about. We've talked to plenty about the relative value of credit, and we're not alone. Howard Marks says, quote, a significant reallocation of capital toward credit is warranted, unquote. And one Edward Smith, co-CIO at UK money manager Rathbones, says, quote, the investment case for owning credit relative to equities has clearly gone through a seismic transformation relative to where we were for most of the last decade, unquote. Okay, then. This week, our three things are, one, earnings optimism. Is it misplaced? Two, the Fed's financial stability report. We'll have a look at what the central bank is warning us about. And three, default outlook. We'll talk to our own Eric Rosenthal for the latest. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. Corporate earnings optimism. So we're about a quarter of the way through earnings season, and so far, so okay. That is, if you exclude Boeing, which reported its 14th pre-tax loss quarter in a row. Quite a record. The big banks, as we discussed last week, are relatively sanguine about what the future looks like, with the exception of loans on office buildings and to subprime consumers. So far, year-over-year earnings growth for the third quarter has come in essentially flat, close to the full 500s, expectations of down 1%. The beat rate of 78% thus far is about where it usually is. All right, so here's what's interesting to us. Cyclical troughs in economic growth happen after the Fed's last rate hike. Makes sense, right? The Fed tightens monetary policy in a hot economy, and that we have, with GDP coming in stronger than just about anyone expected. Many, including ourselves, believe that this is the last hurrah of the pandemic period's stimulus-driven exuberance. There are a lot of forward-looking indicators suggesting that growth is set to contract. Now, we've talked about how the consensus view of 2024 earnings strikes us as fanciful, showing growth of 12% above 2023's level. You might say, well, much of that growth, I would assume, is coming from big tech. Interestingly, the growth rate of the equal-weighted S&P 500 is 12%, into an economic contraction with a very real possibility of recession. We have a hard time getting to that 12% figure. Here's another way to look at it. If we look back at the year-over-year quarterly earnings growth rates of the 11 individual sectors in the S&P, we see that in 2019, four sectors were negative. Not surprisingly, in COVID-impacted 2020, as many as eight sectors over the course of the year showed negative earnings growth. In the stimulus year of 2021, almost no sectors were negative, again, as we would expect. That started to change in the fourth quarter of 2022, back to a majority of those 11 sectors, call it six to seven, per quarter went negative. In the most recent quarter, Q2, six of 11 sectors went negative as companies confronted high inflation, and that's the estimate, six of 11, in the current quarter. So it comes as a bit of a surprise to us that in 2024, when economic contraction figures to be at its most restrictive, only three sectors are forecast to be negative in Q1, and after that, None, none the rest of the year into the trough of economic growth. In fact, five of the 11 are showing forecasted growth in double digits. Does that make sense? We don't know how to connect those dots. So don't lose sight of where we are. We're moving towards the bottom, which we would target around mid-year 2024. We would do well to maintain earnings levels as we move through those headwinds. All right, on to our second thing. 
financial stability, as in the financial stability report issued semi-annually by the Fed. The latest version was published this week, and to be honest, it's not all that bad. The report focuses on four broad categories and how those categories might interact to amplify stress in the financial system. The four categories are, one, valuation pressures, an increased willingness of investors to take risk. Two, excessive borrowing by businesses and consumers. Three, excessive leverage in the financial system. And four, funding risks in the financial system. So while the 70-page report talks a lot about risks in those four categories, nothing rises to the level, in my view, of something that poses a clear and present danger to the financial system or the economy. And that's a real plus from a creditor's perspective. For example, take equity valuations. The report observes that equity prices grew faster than expected earnings, pushing the forward multiple into the upper ranges of its historical distribution. So, yes, that's factually true, but the magnitude, call it 20 times forward on the S&P 500 versus the long-term average of 17 times, doesn't get us all that animated. And, by the way, the equal-weighted S&P is currently trading below its long-term average. The report did note stretched valuations in commercial and residential real estate. On risk two, borrowing trends, the report points out that private debt to GDP continued to edge down and remained close to its historical average. Firms' ability to service debt remained solid. Credit quality at small businesses remained solid. Household debt was at modest levels, although borrowers with low credit scores are showing signs of stress. Residential mortgage risk was generally low. With regard to financial system leverage, the banks remained, quote, sound and resilient, unquote. No small feat given where we were back in March. Bank profitability was robust, with only moderate vulnerability to future credit losses. And on the funding side of things, most banks had high levels of liquid assets and stable funding. A subset, however, according to the Fed, continued to face funding pressures. Elsewhere, leverage remained high at the largest hedge funds and low at broker-dealers. Since the last report in May, respondents grew more concerned about monetary tightening, real estate valuations, market liquidity and volatility, and China, all of which, along with banking sector stress, rounds out the top five concerns. Falling off of that top five list was worries about the Russia-Ukraine war. So to sum up, a fairly comforting report from a source that is incentivized to find discomfort. All right, on to our third thing, default outlook with our own Eric Rosenthal. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. I've been reading a lot about defaults picking up lately. Is that what you're seeing? Any surprises out there? Thanks, Van, for having me back again. Following a relatively sleepy September for defaults, there's been a pickup in October. On Malone's side, there has been six defaults totaling $4.6 billion, and this represents the most volume tallied since June. For high yield, as of Wednesday afternoon, there have been three defaults for $2.7 billion, paced by Rite Aid's bankruptcy, but there could be an additional $8 billion of defaults recorded this month. Legato Networks faces a November 1st maturity on its note, while Odyssey and WeWork, they're currently in their grace periods after skipping interest payments. So the potential for $10 billion plus in October defaults, that could represent the largest monthly total since July of 2020. Now, the vast majority of the year-to-date defaults, they were baked into our 2023 forecasts. It's hardly a surprise that Rite Aid and Air Methods, for example, defaulted, while others, such as Legato and Odyssey, they're on the brink of defaulting. 
Now, on the other hand, healthcare company Acumen was viewed as a 2024 default. So that was more of a timing element. And the same can be said if WeWork undertakes a second default this year. Got it. So if I recall, your 2023 dollar-based default forecast was three and a quarter percent for high yield and four and a half percent for leveraged loans. Is that still doable given the October pickup? Right. So for high yield, our 3.25% forecast remains very much in play. Now, there is the potential for the rate to finish a shade higher at around 3.5%, but that still requires another $4 billion of defaults over the final two months. Currently, the year-to-date rate stands at 2.7%, and from a count perspective, the default rate is higher at 3.4%, which is in line with our 4% prediction. For syndicated loans, the default rate will likely finish below our 4.5% expectations. While there are still some sizable borrowers that are on our default radar red list, loan defaults typically take longer to occur than high yield. The year-to-date rate is at 3.3%, which equates to $48 billion of volume, which at the moment is actually $12 billion more than what you're seeing for high yield. And from an issuer vantage, the year-to-date rate is at 5.2%, and that will likely exceed our anticipated 5.5% level. All right, so let's look ahead. What are you thinking about for 2024 default rates and maybe a sector or two to watch? Also, any sense as to where we will peak and when? So I want to see how the dust settles over the remainder of the year regarding the fates of anticipated 2023-2024 defaults. Nevertheless, we forecast similar rates in 2024 as for 2023. We are calling for a 4% rate for loans and 3.5% for high yield, and that's both dollar-based. Now, the number of deals should also be in line with our 2023 forecasts. Now, for sectors, healthcare will most likely again drive default activity. Five of the nine largest borrowers on our loan default radar red list come from healthcare. This sector accounts for 38% of the volume and one-third of the number of issuers on the red list. Furthermore, Bausch Health is easily the largest name on our high-yield red list. All that said, this sector can be tougher to predict due to its non-cyclical nature and the role of government as compared to, say, energy or or even consumer. In terms of peak rates, that feels more like a 2025 event. Still, I'm hard-pressed to see levels hitting 5% on a dollar basis, even if the macro environment worsens. The reason is that both the syndicated and high-yield universes have become so large, roughly $1.3 trillion to $1.5 trillion, depending on which source you're using. But a 5% loan default rate equates to nearly $75 billion of volume, which would be close to the amount achieved during the GFC. You also don't have that same potential large defaulter now as maybe you found in 2009. Recall, for example, that Lyondell provided $16 billion to that syndicated loan total. So for high yield, a 5% rate, it's a little more likely considering there are some large issuers on our default radar red and orange list. Nevertheless, there are significantly fewer high yield borrowers on these lists at 56, compared with 118 for syndicated loans. All right. So let's turn to the topic of direct lending, right? The year-to-date issuer rate stands at 1.6%. Why is that level lower than the 5.2% for syndicated loans and 3.4% for high yield? Right. So you have a few reasons, with the main one relating to the universe composition. So we have roughly 2,500 borrowers in the KBRA DLD direct lending universe. That is nearly double the size of BSL and nearly triple that for high yield. So basically, it requires a lot more direct lending defaults to move the needle. Now, while there have been 40-year-to-date defaults, that only translates to the 1.6 rate you noted. And the second reason is probably the small club of direct lenders 
are typically more willing to work with sponsors as they have substantial skin in the game as buy and hold underwriters. And if you want a third reason, I'd say trading, which is much more open for liquid credits to various type of investors that may have opposing agendas, especially when trouble arises. All right, so we've seen others calling for direct lending default rates surpassing syndicated loans in 2024. Does that make sense? See, I just don't see it. And this goes back to the universe composition and also the fact that liquid credit is simply more visible, especially when you're talking about restructurings, distressed debt exchanges. Now, there are double the number of borrowers on our direct lending red list compared with syndicated loans. And note, you can find the individual names in our monthly reports. But I expect resolution on many of the direct lending names when third and fourth quarter BDC results are released. Really, the better test for 2024 is the orange list. And at the moment, there are 54 direct lending names versus 76 on the syndicated loan side. All right, let's leave it there for now. I should mention you can find all of Eric's work on our KBRA DLD website. That's at dld.kbraanalytics.com. Once again, dld.kbraanalytics.com. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, earnings optimism. It's time to temper your enthusiasm. Two, the Fed's financial stability report. All things considered, this is a fairly upbeat report. And three, default outlook. We have a hard time getting to the more bearish estimates out there. As always, thanks for joining. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our ratings reports and our latest research. See you next week. Hello, listeners. Join me, Van Hesser, KBRA's chief strategist for in-depth conversations with credit experts in my new monthly podcast, Leading Voices in Credit, where I'll interview market professionals on the latest trends in credit markets. That's Leading Voices in Credit with Van Hesser. Subscribe now.